1: Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better?
2: My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Or we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard
3: concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep
2: it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois.
4: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com/pod50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com/pod50 for 50% off. The year, 1942,
1: and Jimmy Cagney has turned in Tommy Guns for tap shoes. It's Yankee Doodle Dandy. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear.
0: I'm Amy Nicholson.
1: (laughs) This is the podcast, Amy, where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Today we'll be talking about Yankee Doodle Dandy, which uh, maybe this is the first time you're coming to our podcast because you saw us uh, host uh, the AFI Movie Club last week. So, welcome. But last week we did Cabaret, and there's a lot of interesting feedback about Cabaret. Uh, our Facebook group determines, yes, this belongs on the list about a two-to-one uh, favor, but I think there was a lot of debate, just like you and I had, Amy, about this film. Is it Does it belong on the list?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of love on the list for putting something like all that jazz of Chicago in over Cabaret. Um there was a lot of love for people drawing images of you dressed like Liza Minnelli, which I also appreciate. Thank you, Seth Robel.
1: <laughs> I've seen some pretty amazing pictures. I, I really appreciate all of that. And I like that he gave me a little like a hairy armpit in there, too. It was really lovely.
0: Uh, <laughs> that means um, you're not a star, baby.
1: I know. I'm, the, I'm background. <laughs> um, but uh, Gary Holmes, he tweeted at us and he said, you know, another uh, great pod, Cabaret appeared in the middle of an incredibly cynical period in American culture from 69 to 75. Consider Midnight Cowboy, Easy Rider, Last Picture Show, Godfathers, MASH, Chinatown, Nashville, all great but despairing. I mean, it's interesting that both Cabaret and Nashville end on faux upbeat songs that suggest escapism was the only alternative to the existential hopelessness. I mean, it took Lucas and Spielberg to pull Hollywood out of its depression. Um, You know, that's, that is interesting. I mean, this is a very, I think, gritty period of American cinema that I think is looked back very fondly on, but it is incredibly uh, bleak.
0: Yeah, it, it reminded me of something that Angela Irizarry said later. She said, you know, I love the fact that we watched this cabaret so soon after Sullivan's Travels. Because this is what happens when you seek pleasure and refuse to engage meaningfully with the world around you. Ooh. Angela says, you know, I'm still trying to grapple with how I feel about the movie stripping down the musical elements, but I don't think we can get rid of it until we get more queer movies and or musicals on the list.
1: I, I, uh, I agree with that. But I mean, at the same time, now Nick Domino uh, brings up an interesting point, he says Cabaret is an excellent movie, but I think it gets too much credit for being a queer film. Any kind of same-sex intimacy is only obliquely alluded to and never shown on screen. While there are plenty of scenes with women being sexual for a male audience, Berlin had a large and vibrant gay and trans culture, which Isherwood participated in before the Nazis came to power, but you wouldn't know it from watching Cabaret, or at least beyond a few timid hints calculated to be not too offensive to the mainstream movie-going American audience. Now that's an interesting point, you know, not to say that this is the de facto queer film, but I think that these baby steps help change the dialogue or allow things to progress. We talked about this last week, how cabaret from stage to screen to then stage again has really continued to evolve. I, I think that, you know, it's it's hard to to judge it so harshly when it was trying to do so much in a time in a movie that wasn't rated X, like Midnight Cowboy is rated X. You know, I feel like to bridge that gap, you sometimes need a will and grace uh, to kind of get you to a place uh, where you don't have to make it a thing. That's fair.
0: Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I have to say there's sort of the matter of factness about cabaret that I actually like about it. You know, when you realize that Michael York's character is by, it's just sort of like, oh, okay. It's not like, explain that to me, or what is that? You know, it's just, he says who he is, you know, as a mm. person deep down, and it's just sort of taken as a given, or that he, you know, has this affair with the Baron is just a thing that happens, and there's something in the, okay, of course you had sex with him, that I kind of appreciate about this movie, that it, yeah. it almost seems like bold in its nonchalantness about it.
1: You I, I, you know, I definitely agree. I think there's a lot of things to like. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think there are a lot of themes and choices made here that are incredibly uh forward thinking. And especially for, you know, a female character and they do a lot of, I don't know. I, I think you have to applaud it on some level. And again, you have to look at it through the scope and, and the time in which it was made.
0: That's fair. I will say, um, Guy Simchoni wrote in he said, you know, mm. if we're to have a film on this list about a promiscuous, delusional, independent, charismatic woman who has a hard time accepting love, I would rather it be Breakfast at Tiffany's in spite of that one problematic element.
1: Well, yeah, there is a, a very big problematic element in that movie. But no, you know, that film is a great, another great film. I mean, what do you think, Amy? Breakfast at Tiffany's versus Cabaret. You know, it definitely feels like, Breakfast at Tiffany's is more in the cultural conversation. Uh, I mean, I
0: will say one of the things that surprises me about the list is that Breakfast at Tiffany's isn't on it. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it feel like a movie that should obviously be on this list? I think I checked three or four times to make sure that it wasn't on because I was like, that's weird. It just—it seems like one that it would be voted on, obviously. And then we talk about does it still deserve to be on instead of it just Uh, never being here at at all.
1: Yeah, it's a bizarre omission. But I also think it's not so bizarre when you look at the makeup of all these films which are very much male led films i mean there's very few female led pictures on this list and maybe that was part of it that it wasn't kind of in the in the zeitgeist of you know these other for lack of a better term macho movies there's a million war films there's a million you know of these 70s films with male leads it's it's a uh, you know there's a there's not really that much uh of of those kind of romantic Uh, comedies on a list like this.
0: That's true. And I do notice, you know, when we have a movie, say like a Cary Grant movie on this list, I find myself getting very protective, you know, like, Oh, we can't kick this off. It's Cary Grant, even though Cary Grant has so many movies on this list. And yet, you know, when, when I think you like do, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this, I guess in Hollywood terms, because this is what I think of when I drive down the street, you know, you see, I feel like a lot of Hollywood actors get boiled down to that shorthand. You're like Hollywood. It's a handful of people. It's James Dean it's Marilyn Monroe, it's Audrey Hepburn, it's Humphrey Bogart.
1: Did you ever see that picture of all of them eating at that diner that one night? I mean, I can't believe that photographer got that, but they (laughs) all were there.
0: I don't know if I've seen that. Oh, yeah, they all were there. But what I'm trying to say is that I think it's really interesting that um, of the, the major female stars that I would say we use as kind of our shorthand for Hollywood, especially Hollywood in like the 50s and 60s, Audrey Hepburn and, and Marilyn Monroe. It's not my favorite Marilyn Monroe that we have on here with some Like It Hot. And then there is no Audrey, which is surprising. It's so I'm trying yeah. I'm saying that out loud to myself because I get so protective over letting go of any other of any great actors on this list. But I mean, to not have Audrey Hepburn anywhere, that's insane.
1: It really is. I mean, I was surprised when I read that comment as well. I was like, wait, it's not on the list, but we're almost at the end of the list and we have not watched it. And and you double-checked it. So I feel like we're right. And I wonder uh why that is. Um uh, maybe it is because in the world that this list was made in people were able to at least go you know what that character that mickey rooney plays is problematic we should not uh maybe embrace it maybe although i don't think of this list as having that much foresight but uh maybe they did
0: yeah i don't know i mean honestly i feel like there's a fan edit of breakfast at tiffany's where you just edit him out right like (laughs) i mean when is george lucas going to get around to that they're like the ultimate edit of breakfast at Tiffany's where you never have to feel a little bit creepy about how much you love that film. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, By the way, uh, if you didn't join us last week, uh, we had a really fun unspooled live streaming event. It was our spool party where we uh, talked about clueless. We showed you how to do some hairstyles from clueless. Uh, We even brought in relationship expert, uh, Ronna Glickman uh, to give people some dating advice. And we're going to do it again. As a matter of fact, Next week, next Monday night at 530, once more, we are going back to the spool party to host the 30-year anniversary tribute to House Party, Kid in Play's House Party. Amy, are you excited?
0: This is one of my favorite movies on the planet, as I think I have said many times on this show. I love this movie. I have not let myself rewatch it in such a long time, so it's going to be fresh again to me. I'm overjoyed. We also have a challenge out there for um, the people who want to join us which is, you know, House Party is the movie about dancing in your house. There is no better dancing in your house movie. So we challenge you at home. Give us a house party dance. Do a little dance for us. Take a short little video. And we want to have like a collective giant house party. You can email it to we have an email address.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look at that. We haven't used Uh, it since the pilot.
0: No, I signed up like the day that we started this 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 podcast and completely forgot about it. Uh, But we have it. It's unspooledpod at gmail.com, unspooledpod at gmail.com. So take a short little video, you know, 20, 30 seconds, send it to us about you dancing. It can be you alone. It can be you if you can coordinate some ankle slapping with the people in your house. I'm yeah. excited.
1: I cannot wait. And we have a very special guest on Monday. I'm going to reveal it now. I <gasps> think it's all going to work out because I think it should be fun. Should I keep it or should I not say it, Amy? What do you think? Let's we have a it. very special guest. No, maybe let's just maybe tease it. <laughs> Very special guest coming up uh, on Monday. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And by the way, uh, we are doing these shows uh, in, a, in a slight uh, way to raise awareness uh, for some of the people affected by this pandemic. Um, Amy and I are really interested in raising money for uh, small theaters, independent theaters that are struggling. Uh, and there's a great... Uh, go fund me right now for Art House America. And we've made a t shirt where all of the profits of our t shirt go to Art House America. You can go to uh, tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to check out our indoor adventure squad shirt. It's a little bit of a play on rear window. And we are raising money for Art House America, which are helping keep the doors open on these small independent theaters that need our help. Uh, they've been there for us. We need to be there for them. So uh, come watch House Party on Monday. Buy a shirt if you have the means. If you don't, no pressure. But the uh, unspooled party is always free. So come on in. Tape yourself dancing. There will be special guests. I cannot wait. You know, so, Amy, there's only one thing left to do. uh, Since we're talking about Yankee Doodle Dandy this week, Uh, that starred a tough guy, Jimmy Cagney. Uh, We knew him from all of his gangster films. And then he turns in this performance of uh, a song and dance man. And we thought, who could be the next Jimmy Cagney, who could turn in their uh, Tommy Guns for Tap Shoes. Who could it be? And uh, we went to you to tell us who you wanted to see singing and dancing. You called us up at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And your responses were this. My pick for tough guy who can dance is obviously Robert De Niro. Uh, in the 2007 film, Stardust, uh, his can-can is uh, uncanny.
5: When it comes to tough guys who you know how to cut a rug, there's no bigger name than Steven Seagal. Not only is he a naked action star, a blues guitar virtuoso, and a substantial hugger.
4: I think The Rock is a great dancer. He just, you know, he just seems like someone who would best move and you wouldn't expect it. I think it's because I just watched Mad Max where Tom Hardy is, like so silent for so much to the movie i just i feel like you know he could just break into a nice soft shoe and that would tell us everything that he was thinking
0: you know i like that one about tom hardy because i will say i feel like tom hardy is a person that years from now we're gonna look back and be like you know we could have done more justice by tom hardy i feel like tom hardy is such a great romantic comedy leading man and it is not getting tapped and it is driving me insane
1: well, so, I yes, feel like if
0: he can sing and dance, too, I absolutely believe he can sing and dance, too. He can do anything.
1: I would like to see him sing and dance in that uh, Capone makeup. Um, also, I want to say uh, I didn't mind seeing The Rock up there. I mean, what if Hobbs and Shaw, too, is a full on musical? What if it was like pennies for heaven? Statham, we know he's got some moves. He was a, like, uh, you know, uh, a diver. That's a very balletic kind of uh form of sport um maybe the two of them just singing and dancing all the way through the fast and furious universe i'm down for that i want to see the rock dance god damn it um I have to say, that
0: would be better than Hobbs and shaw
1: oh amy don't get me down this road um <laughs> all right let's put a cork in that right now and let's get on to our feature presentation which is of course yankee doodle dandy let's unspool it my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. It's 1942. The United States joins the war, officially making it a world war, the second one. Car makers switch from manufacturing cars to making war materials. Nutella is invented due to wartime chocolate rations. The Manhattan Project begins, a U.S. government and military program designed to create nuclear weapons. A physicist at the University of Chicago built the first nuclear reactor. At Harvard, napalm is invented, and in Germany, The guided missile is perfected. Instant Coffee comes out this year. And the big hot movies of the day include Casablanca, Bambi, and today's topic, Yankee Doodle Dandy. It comes in at 98 on the AFI's top 100 list in 2007, up from its number 100 rank on the previous list. So, uh, you know, coming down two slots there. Amy, uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of Yankee Doodle Dandy.
2: Do you know what this is? Congressional Medal of Honor. Let's see what the inscription says. To George M. Cohan for his contribution to the American spirit. Over there and grand old flag. Presented by Act of Congress. I congratulate you, Mr. Cohan. I understand you're the first person of your profession to receive this honor. You should be very proud.
3: Oh, I am proud. In fact, I'm flabbergasted. For the first time in my life, i was speechless. I'm sure there isn't some mistake.
2: Quite sure.
3: But this medal is for people who have given their lives to their country... ...or have done something big. I'm just a song and dance man. Everybody knows that.
2: A man may give his life to his country in many different ways, Mr. Cohan. And quite often, he isn't the best judge of how much he has given. Your songs were a symbol of the American spirit. Over there was just as powerful a weapon as any cannon, as any battleship we had in the First World War. Today, we're all soldiers. We're all on the front. We need more songs to express America. I know you and your comrades will give them to us.
1: All right, Amy, who's in it? What's it about?
0: Yankee Doodle Dandy. It is the story of famous Broadway producer George M. Cohen, the man who wrote things like, give my regards to Broadway. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. You're a grand old flag. He was a huge hit maker at the turn of the century. Um, and this is his big biopic. I mean, you can you can consider it the, um, the straight out of Compton or Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> of its day, um, starring one of my deeply personal favorite actors, James Cagney, in the rare singing and dancing and role for him. He was such a good dancer. That's how he started his career as a vaudevillian. And here he gets to go back to his roots, surprise everybody, put down the tommy gun, and dance up a storm. Uh, He's joined here by such people as his sister, playing George Cohen's sister. Um, He's also joined by Joan Leslie, our beloved Walter Houston, who plays his father, Jerry Cohen, a whole cast of just like name-checky people referencing the great years of yesteryear. And our director here is somebody we actually haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but we will be talking about more. It's Michael Curtis. He had a great year. This He makes Yankee Doodle Dandy, the number one box office hit of the year, the same year he makes a little film called Casablanca. Hmm. He also did The Adventures of Robin Hood. He did White Christmas. He is a real classic working, adaptable director that we haven't gotten to talk about yet. So welcome, Michael.
1: Well, I'm excited to talk about this movie um, because it really does lay the foundation for exactly what you just described, these big glossy biopics that I think we're so familiar with and that have had uh, an incredible resurgence in the last couple of years—you know—we want to hear the hits. We want to see a really simple story, and there are—and I know you made a joke about it—but there are very big similarities to this and Straight Outta Compton or this and Bohemian Rhapsody. It's—it's it's telling a triumphant story about someone who was kind of taken and and shoved down by the system and rose again uh, and everything, you know, comes up great and you get to listen to a few jaunty tunes, Um, I would argue that with this film, you know, right out of the gate, I'm like, it feels a little bit like propaganda for George M. Cohen. I mean, it, it, it just like, there's nothing wrong. Everything is kind of perfect. It's so, almost laughably so, Smooth around the edges.
0: Yeah, I mean, George M. Cohen is a very big personality. And I think at least part of that definitely comes through in here. He's a he was a real egotist. I mean, he loved to put his name all over his own billboards. He was known for being really full of himself, you know, kind of swaggering around. And in a way, his story kind of dovetails with the American identity. You know, he's a guy who was like, I was born on the 4th of July, I am America. And this personality that I love to put forward, this like, I love the flag. I love myself. I am ambitious. I am a go-getter. I can make this all work for me. I came from nothing. I made myself into something. I am America. That's how he tried to paint himself. And that's how this movie paints himself. Even though, minor side, he lied about being born on the 4th of July. He was born on July 3rd.
1: (laughs) Well, come on, if you're that close. Uh, So does that mean (laughs) that that Tom Cruise's character from the Oliver Stone movie is the only character born on the 4th of July?
0: Actually, I looked this up. Would you like to know who else was born on the 4th of July for real? Yes. Uh Okay. Okay. All right. Here's the list. Actual people born on the 4th of July, more or less in chronological order. Nathaniel Hawthorne, the famous author. Calvin Coolidge, a president. Rube Goldberg, the guy who made all those crazy, amazing contraptions. Um, The gangster Meyer Lansky, also a very American story. A beloved actress in a beloved movie of my heart, Gloria Stewart, who uh, who was in Titanic. Oh, yes. Born on the 4th Of of July. Leona Hel- Helmsley, the Queen of Mean, also yes. born on the 4th of July. Eva Marie Saint, an actor that we've talked about twice, managed to get through yes. her whole life without saying she was born on the 4th of July. Playwright Neil Simon, uh, uh, George Steinbrenner, Bill Withers, wow. rest in peace. Um, oh, wow. And great Americans like Geraldo Rivera and Post Malone.
1: Wow, that's a really eclectic list. Um, interesting. You know, you are talking about this idea, though, how George M. Cohen really embraces being this amazing American figure, you know, very patriotic. Uh, And when you look at it in contrast to Jimmy Cagney, Cagney really wanted this part because he thought that by playing someone who's so patriotic, it would kind of get rid of the taint of his political activities that he did in the 1930s, where he was a strong and somewhat like radical supporter of FDR. Um, And so I think he thought like if he could associate himself with someone like this, he would become that person and i think that that's something that happens a lot with you know movie stars you pick these roles and and all of a sudden people just they they give some of that shine to you i mean it's impossible not to think of jimmy cagney without thinking of yankee doodle dandy i mean that's the memeable moment from this movie like that that song and that performance like you see him singing and dancing there and i think he did a good job of of helping kind of whiten his image a little bit
0: Yeah, right? And when you talk about that, you kind of raise the question of like, what is American patriotism and who does it look like? You know, that that Mm. Jimmy Cagney is a guy who was incredibly patriotic in his own way. He was a real supporter of FDR, as you said, a huge supporter of unions. He's the guy who was always, you know, he was always fighting Warner Brothers about his contract, about it, the fact they thought that they worked actors, not just him, but like younger actors too hard. And so he helped form the Screen Actors Guild. He became one of the presidents of it. He was a guy who hated, you know, people who tried to trow down on the working man. He really stuck up for them. He, I mean, he fundraised to help, like, um, when, when farm workers went on strike in in California, yeah. he tried to raise money for them. And so all of these things that I find to be great examples of Americanhood, he got in trouble for, you know, and he was accused of being a communist by HUAC. And so, yeah, he his brother said to him, his brother Billy was his agent, we're going to have to make the goddamnedest patriotic picture that's ever been made. I think it is the Cohan story. And Cagney didn't really like Cohan. Cohan was anti-union. Cohan hated unions. And so there's almost a struggle at the heart of it of like, I have to play this guy who represents an America that I don't really find fair.
1: But he wants to do it. Like, I mean, but he wants to do it because I think, you know, whenever you put yourself out there in a way that voices your own political concerns, and I can only talk to how it is perceived now, or at least in the time that I've been alive, you can get... Slammed by certain elements of society. I mean, you look at somebody like Jane Fonda has been fighting that off and on, or probably just on the entire time. You know, it, it, I think that probably Jimmy Cagney is like, I need to make sure that I'm in the audience's good graces. You know, so he has to kind of eat shit a little bit. Um, but you're yeah. right. You know, the, you know, you're right about this idea that they did not, they did not agree. They did not agree at all. And and they've made these kind of changes in the script to actually make Cohen even more. Um, more patriotic? like Because in reality, Cohen was an ultra-conservative Republican who despised FDR, right? Uh, He was a supporter of uh, Roosevelt, but then became disenchanted with him and his New Deal policies. Can you think about that? Someone against the New Deal? Oh, we're living in a
0: time with a lot of people who are still against it and trying to make sure it's
1: dead. (laughs) I know, it's so crazy. But look, Cohen's dislike of the president was such that he, even though he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in 1936, he put off meeting with Roosevelt until 1940 to receive it. Like he was like, so this movie where Cohen says like, oh, I was a good Democrat, even in those days, is is kind of this weird middle ground that we're talking about. It's like, he's saying he's a Democrat, although he's a conservative. You have Jimmy Cagney, who is more of a Democrat, who's saying I'm a little bit more conservative. They, people are kind of, Finding this weird middle ground. I, I found that to be really interesting. And because the whole movie, I mean, has the craziest spine. It's basically uh, George M. Cohen being called in to the White House, which he just casually strolls up to. Like, casually strolls up and is like, whoa, hey, security's here? Like, like going to his friend's house. And he's like, whoa, all right. And, you know, and, um, you I know, like, nice it's like, nice
0: bayonet, sir. Mind if I come in? I got an appointment to see the president. See, it's it, 9 p.m. and I'm coming in here.
1: This is so crazy. And then you see FDR. It's the first time you're seeing um, uh, a sitting president. Or I guess like it's the uh, the first time a living president was depicted in a sound film. And you never see FDR's face. You just hear this this voice, you know, uh, and you see the cigarette and the cigarette holder. And, it's a little bit of it,
0: like a video game scene.
1: One million percent. It's, I was, it's like a video Welcome game scene. Welcome to my scene.
0: office. I have a mission for you. Sit down, see?
1: <laughs> Meets like Charlie's Angels. Uh, can you listen to this one little moment? talking about the patriotism of George M. Cohen.
3: I was a pretty cocky kid those days, a pretty cocky kid. Regular Yankee doodle dandy, always carrying a flag
2: in a parade or following one. I hope you haven't outgrown the habit. Not a chance. That's one thing I always admired about you Irish Americans. You carry your love of country like a flag right out in the open. It's a great quality. I inherited that.
1: I mean, like, this movie is, first of all, he said I was a real Yankee doodle. I mean, like, it's like saying, like, oh, I like to create a real bohemian rhapsody wherever I went. <laughs> I mean, it, like, I I love it, and I'm also like, oh, but like, there's like, there's highs and lows about this movie. But that scene is is arguably one of the most ridiculous uh, spines of the film. Like this conversation where FDR is just like, you're the best, I love you, you're you know, get here crazy kid, you are America. I mean, that's a crazy thing to do in a biopic to be like you. Honestly, America never knew anybody as good as you.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And what's fascinating about it is how this isn't even ancient history that you can kind of tap dance over. This had just happened. He had only just bothered to meet FDR. FDR was still in office. He still wasn't liking him. And they're like, we're all just going to pretend that this is okay. But it it kind of had to be because this movie is made while Pearl Harbor is bombed. You know, and they're like, okay, we need to make this movie. We have to make the most patriotic movie. The entire country is basically saying what Jimmy what um, Jimmy Cagney's brother said to him. We have to make the most goddamnedest patriotic movie ever made. And I, I do have to say, I like at least that it becomes, in a way, a story a bit about immigration. You know, we talked about this a lot with, like, Godfather 2 and, like, the story of creating Americans, that you have this ultra-patriotic family who was first-generation Irish on his parents' side. And it's saying, like, here is the fabric of what America is made of. Like, we are immigrants. Immigrants make an American story. But then the movie absolutely decides to just, like, agree with the lies dead on. Because straight up at the beginning, you have the scene of, here he is, George M. Cohen, being born on the 4th of July as a baby and getting the most patriotic name. I mean, let's listen to that. And that voice you hear as his dad is our beloved Walter Houston. Why,
5: he just got here and he's sleeping already.
6: Old oh, babies sleep 20 hours a day, Jerry.
5: I suppose that's why most of them never amount to anything. What do we call him?
6: Oh, I don't know.
5: What do you say? Well, seeing that he arrived on the 4th of July, what about George Washington, Cohan? Well, it has a nice patriotic ring to it, all right. What do you think?
3: Oh, the George is fine, but the Washington may be too long for a billboard.
5: Well, how about my nice short Irish name, Denis or Michael?
3: George Michael Cohan. <laughs> yes. I
5: like that name. Oh, gosh, I forgot. Hey! It's a boy! Oh, Jerry.
3: <laughs>
5: Heavenly day, Nelly, he's crying
3: with the bro. <laughs> I guess the first thing I ever had my fist on huh, was the American flag. I hitched my wagon to 38 stars and 13 stripes. You no, know, I was six or seven years old before I realized they weren't celebrating my birthday on the fourth of July.
0: I mean, you were born on the third. Like, was he living the first six years of his life? Were his parents lying to him when he was a child? Was he lied to as a child? Did his parents just tell him that he was born on the fourth of July? By the way, Is this way, like a I, BC Andrews book?
1: I would buy that. His parents are show people. I think it's a better story to be born on the 4th of July. I think we're talking about a day difference. I know that um With my son right now, uh, you know, we are, his birthday is coming up and we've, we've wrestled with when do we tell him it's his birthday because he doesn't quite know when it will be because he doesn't have a full, uh, you know, grasp of the calendar. So we wanted to make sure we could do something that, you know, that would surprise him the most. Like one year we, we just moved the date. I, I, so in that way, I'm sorry,
0: you lie to your child about his birthday. This is a, is this a show business parents thing?
1: Well, you know what happened was June was going to be away on location and she wanted to celebrate his birthday. So we just told him his birthday was a day before his actual birthday. He didn't know the difference. And we celebrated it full so he could have his full birthday with both of his parents there. We just kind of just lied. We just did it. And it was totally fine.
0: <laughs> and I think it,
1: and he appreciated it. He He's
0: going to go up and write a biopic
4: about himself and be like, my birthday uh, is a lot of fun. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com/pod50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com/pod50 for 50% off. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
1: Where this movie falters for me is in this overly uh, patriotic, like can do no wrong, can do attitude part of George M. Cohen's life. What I think it kind of nails perfectly is the life of an actor and a life of a performer. And so to that point, I think, yes, I buy his parents as performers. They're putting him on parades, riding on donkeys through towns. like, you're born on the Fourth of July. We're doing a show. We're show people. Everything needs to be a something. And uh, so I I do think that they kind of nail that energy uh, really, really well. And it kind of shows
0: that like as a non performer,
1: I don't know. I feel like this movie does talk about actors lives from the point when they have to decide where to hit the kid. Because like if they hit him in the wrong spot, it will show up on stage, like stuff like that, and and there's other stuff. I think they just show the this, this struggle of it, and you know, and and trying to sell your stuff and kind of compromising your stuff. And you know, I love that one line where he says, you know, I've been hitting the pavement so hard, and even my socks have bunions. You know, uh, I just think that there's a truthfulness to that kind of performer. I love this one little speech uh, about being an actor, and this is kind of right when uh, George M. Cohen has his first leading role in a slapstick stage production, which I didn't even know they had slapstick stage productions where they're throwing flour and eggs. I'm like, wouldn't that just be incredibly messy, but I guess I'm going to buy that this movie is totally real. So, uh, I just couldn't imagine every night them resetting flour. Um, but here's this little speech that his dad gives him. And again, uh, Walter Houston in this movie is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I mean, the death scene, which we'll get to, spoiler alert, is just incredibly moving. But this scene is, I think, my second favorite scene next to that. So take a listen.
5: Georgie, those boys did you a great favor. They saved me a lot of trouble. You know, most actors give their whole lives to their profession without once scoring a hit. You're lucky. You're a hit at the age of 13. I've been in this business a long time, and I've never met a performer who, in the long run, wouldn't rather be a great guy than a great actor. That is, until I made your acquaintance.
4: Can I be both?
5: Chances are the way you're going, you won't be either. If the Hudums don't get you, a committee of actors will. Actors are considered a very bad risk by insurance companies. And any actor with a conceit like yours, well, we just couldn't afford the premium.
3: What your father really means is you're too sensitive. You're too anxious to make good. You love the theater too much. Oh, I know you can improve if you want to.
4: Sure I can. Just watch me.
3: From now on, I'm Peck's Bad Boy only from 8:30 to 11 in the evening. That's a boy, Georgie. I promise, Mother. And don't forget, Wednesdays and Saturdays, 2:30 to 5.
4: Yes, sir. And the other 21 and a half hours, I pattern myself after Dad.
5: <laughs> well, he could find a better example, but that's the general idea.
4: I mean, what I love
0: about that scene is he's like, okay, I promise, I will be a good person. And then he immediately does the opposite. Immediately, yeah. in that immediately. scene, a huge producer. Ed Albee, who is actually the grandfather of Edward Albee, our our playwright, uh, comes and he's like, I got money for you guys. Come with me. I'll give you a job. And the son, he immediately is like, it's not good enough for me, man. Get out of here. Where's my money? I'm a star. He, He can't even last like 30
1: seconds. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. But even in doing that, they're showing it in a triumphant way. Like he wouldn't take no for an answer. He knew he was a star from the minute he goes. And that's like kind of this yin and yang that this movie holds. But I think whenever you have... Uh, actors making movies about actors, there is a truth in those films that is going to be more resonant than them making a movie about farmers because they're not actually farmers. You know what I'm saying? I think that everyone can bring something to the table, the directors, the actors, uh, and the writers, because they're actually in this business. So there is a little truth there. And I think this movie has those moments throughout, like this idea of just being so connected to wanting to perform, like even at the end of the film, Cagney's like, just desire and, and un, kind of unhappiness being away from the stage. Um, and it's, you're right. It's incredibly egotistical. This whole movie is egotistical, but I think the, the star of this movie or the way that the character is portrayed in this film makes this movie. So that feels right to me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he doesn't position himself um, without a, a giant uh, bit of ego. He really, he thinks highly of himself at every turn. He's smarter than everybody else and he sends his family out packing while he hits it in New York. You know, I just think uh, this movie does some really fun stuff in that world. And I think that that's because George M. Cohen was around and and looking over the film to a certain extent. I know that he, um, while he was a consultant, he didn't get to be so involved in the film, but he got to see the film before he died. He approved of Cagney's portrayal. But I think he got to add a couple bits of two cents in here and there.
0: Yeah. I mean, kind of, I think the way that the timeline worked out is this movie was supposed to premiere on the 4th of July, but they were so worried that George M. Cohen was going to die before they could have it come out. They moved up the premiere to Memorial day weekend in May. And then I think George Cohen dies in November and on this surge of goodwill, you know, of him, of this movie, of patriotism, of the song of over there, this anthem that they have for soldiers, then Cagney wins the Oscar um, in February. So it's just this huge crest that they're wow. that they're riding. I mean, one quick thing. Walter Houston in that scene we just listened to. He's only 6 years younger than he is when he makes Treasure of Sierra Madre. He looks so wow. different. I mean, he's unrecognizable. I guess that's the power of like fake beards and eyebrows, which this movie also gives like a tribute to the power of a fake beard and a fake eyebrow to change your entire face.
1: Oh, I mean, it's amazing that sequence where he meets uh the woman who comes backstage to talk to him is like is an amazing sequence it's it's such a fun set piece where he is pretending to be an old man who's having like a roller skating date with a 17-year-old girl and he solely you know takes off this makeup much to her shock and horror
0: i love it i want to listen to the scene and as we do you know Joan Leslie who's playing kind of like the shocked girl um she was she actually had her own history that i think ties in really well with this whole film i mean This film is, and I feel like we said this about other ones again, like kind of this tribute to vaudeville, this tribute to the vaudeville actors, you know, this like culture of performance that died off because everybody in here was a vaudevillian. You know, Jimmy Cagney was, Walter Houston definitely was, and Joan Leslie was like a baby vaudevillian who was in this family act with her three sisters. And she was actually also raised lying about her age. She was telling people when she was nine years old, she was lying and saying that she was 16.
1: Oh my Which is gosh. the thing well, that
0: she continued to do when she got to Hollywood. She was like, I'm older than I am. And they would cast her as romantic leads. And then they'd be like, you're 14. And then they would have to uncast her again and like cast her sister's as a romantic lead. And here she's cast as like his wife. You see her grow up. She's 17 in this movie. You know, She's like a t- an absolute baby.
1: Yeah, she's 17. She ages to 57 in the film. Um, but like they had to take breaks, a constant breaks, because she was still going to school. Like that was like, like this movie was shut down because she was literally in school. Cause she was 17 years old when they started shooting it.
0: I mean, I have to say she does an okay 50. I mean, what they, yeah. it seems like what they do to make her 50 is they just give her these very, these very big breasts. Is that like, that's kind of, it felt like that's what they did.
1: Yeah. yeah they puff it out. They make everybody yeah. look a little bit different. I mean, I think Jimmy Cagney ages really wonderfully in this film. You know, uh, he really does a fantastic job, um, uh, you know, I think that that is kind of the impressive feat of this film. It it takes place over such a long period of time that you really get to watch these characters evolve. And I think that the actors all do a really, I mean, Walter Houston gets older and significantly so. And, you know, to to see him from this first scene to the last scene, his transformation is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. And so does, and so does the actress um, Rosemary de who plays his mom who plays, Mm. uh, yeah, she's like younger than Jimmy Cagney when she's playing his mom. They do a really good job with that. I mean, I guess it is a tribute to like fake beards. I've never had a fake beard. It looks fun. Uh, Let's listen to that scene though, with him and and his wife-to-be. Oh, Georgie, (laughs) excuse me. You haven't forgotten we have a date tonight, have you? Oh, no, no,
3: no, of course not. We're going roller skating. Roller skating on a night like this? Why, there's a moon out. I'll be ready in five minutes. <laughs> Pepperino, isn't she? Yes, is she your daughter? No, oh, I'm not married. Your niece, perhaps. Oh, she's just a kid with the show. We've been dating. Oh, isn't she a little too young for you? Oh, no, she's getting along in years. She's 17.
1: Well, now I want to talk to you about this scene because I don't believe that he believes she has talent. Do you? Oh, that's a good question,
0: right? Because the their whole love story is he meets this girl. She's like, I'm from Buffalo. I want to be a singer and dancer. He brings her on to their, their whole circuit that they're going on. Yeah. But basically just so she can sing his songs and then get fired for them when, yeah, when the producers like, don't want to hear her sing his songs. They want her to sing the other songs. And then he uses her as like an audition person.
1: Yeah, like yeah. I feel like he's not interested in her really. Like, I feel like when he first meets her, he's like, oh, I'd, I'd like to go out with her. And then he's like, oh, this is actually great. She can be my puppet. And then when she, you know, she sells the show, he's like, "Okay, oh, right, now you can be, you know, I'm going to give your part away. He gives her part away. Like, I mean, her character arc is, is pretty upsetting. But yet again, it's painted so wonderfully. Like when he goes, and I got to tell you, I give, give, give away your part. She's like, oh, I knew that when you Brian came in with the roses. And, you know, it's like, oh, everything is fine. Like in a, in a real, there had to be more drama there. I mean, there just had to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, kind of the way they wrote the wife here is they combined two of his wives into one wife. Okay. So he he had a first wife that they came up through the vaudeville acts together. And then he had a second wife whose middle name was Mary, which is where they got this Mary. But got it. one of But one of the input things that George uh, M. Cohen really did when they were trying to make the script is he was like, you have to have me meet her later. You have to have me propose to her later. Because if it's too early, then my first wife is going to sue us because she's going to think it's about her. And so oh, wow. they kept trying to push it. That's why, like, he doesn't propose to her until almost the second half of the film. And then um, his wife sued them anyways, and they got thrown out. But yeah, like, the her whole character is like, I really want to be a performer. And I think she, I think she had, I think she would have been a great comedian. Because, you know, when they're going around singing his songs, like, H is for Harriet, and trying yeah. to amuse people with it. She has such an expressive, funny face. You know, she's so funny. And I think if she had been able to run in the comedy route, she would have killed. But because this is a movie, she's like, I give up my entire career to make you happy. I mean, can we hear their proposal scene? Because it's crazy. Always worried about me, aren't you? Ever think about yourself?
3: Not much lately. Haven't had time. The minute I saw you without your beard, I knew here was a little boy who needed a lot of looking after. Mm -hmm. So I gave myself the job. There are a lot of singers, you know, but very few really good looker-afters. Mm-hmm. Darling, how would you like a lifetime job of looking after? Leading lady, run of the play. Maybe a few heartaches after the curtain goes up, but I can guarantee you some laughs. How does it sound? I think I might like it, Mr. Cohen. Could I, uh, see some of the script? Mm-hmm. not bad for a first reading. The coffee's boiling over. Oh, darling, uh, something I forgot to tell you. Yes, dear. Uh, I gave your song to Faye Templeton tonight. Mm-hmm. Darling, you hear me? I, uh, I gave your song to Faye Templeton tonight. Yes, I know. I knew you did, dear, when you brought the candy and flowers.
1: I mean, this is insane. This is an insane fucking scene, right? Because, first of all, is he even proposing to her? We talked about this idea, like, what does he really want from her? Is she just, like, a bag of meat that he's puppeting around? Because he seemingly is proposing to her to help soften the blow of giving away her career. Uh, You know, I mean, the proposal is not romantic at all. And then she takes it all with a, you got it, dear. You know, a very June Cleaver response. And I think that that's like, that's my, again, I would say like, oh, that's where this movie kind of falls flat. It doesn't make that much of a difference because we still are making these movies and we're still rewarding them with Academy Awards and we're giving it all. We're like, yes, yes, more of that.
0: I know what I find so funny about that scene is, so she's just been like taking care of him and they've never even kissed like for years. She's just been making him coffee and sandwiches. They haven't kissed at all. They've just been completely platonic. Cause I mean, because that is clearly their
1: first kiss. I mean, this is also like what happens when you're allowed to rewrite your own history. I mean, I think that people try to do this all the time, but this person, George M. Cohen, really was a part of it. I mean, so much so that I mean Cagney brought in his own people to rewrite the film to, you know, to kind of continue to finesse it because I think it was not believable. I mean, even even Cohan's daughter, Georgette, was like, this is the kind of life that daddy would have liked to have lived. You know, I think you get caught in that thing of just telling your own myth, you know, and uh and yes, he was incredibly talented and the songs he created were wonderful. But, you know, it it's 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 tricky. It's a tricky thing to be like, I'm so perfect and nothing goes wrong. Like if I ever told that to my wife, there would be a fight. It wouldn't probably wreck our Marriage, but there would be a fight. And how much more interesting would that scene have been? She's like, you gave away my one chance? My one chance to be something, you fucking jerk. Sorry I'm cursing so much. It's just the quarantine.
0: <laughs> right, no. Yeah, I mean this is this is this is so much my problem with straight out of Compton. It's like you let Dre be a producer and suddenly the third act is all about Hey, I'm going to have Beats by Dre exist. And Did you know I, I mean, Come on. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't, you have to have, I think some sort of separation between church and state. But what I think is so interesting about this movie in the context is in 1942, a time when people are not dummies. Could it, people are not dummies. They're like, we don't care. This is great. This is the movie we want to see. We want to see this right now. Lie to us. We don't even mind. Keep, like we all know this is true because like here, when we watch this movie, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2020, I will be honest. I don't know that much about George M. Cohen as a mm-hmm. person. Like you could tell me anything about him, and I would have to look it up to find out if it's true. But in 1942, people people know. This, people haven't forgotten their history yet, and so and so they know they're being lied to, and they do not care. This is the number one movie of the box office.
1: But no one, and that's the thing. We always want movies like this. We oh, I mean, we just said it. We want it today too. It's like it's, we are attracted to this story of I made no mistakes, I spoke truth to power, and yet I ascended, right? Like, I mean, that is that is the American way, right? It's like, I didn't play by the rules, everyone counted me out, and then I was the best. Um, yeah, and that is that is, it,
0: you're right, you nailed it. I mean, that is so much the American identity.
1: And, and I think that, you know, and I, there's nothing wrong with this. This is a fun movie to watch. It flies by, it's, really fun in the way it's directed. They do really great little set pieces, like when they travel around the world and they're all living in the like little luggage stamps. Like there's so much to enjoy, but if you look at it and you look at it and go like, this is a story of someone, it lacks drama, it lacks tension, it lacks everything that a good movie has, but sometimes I guess we don't want that. We just want to be entertained. And I think that's the the reason why you have all these shows on Broadway. That are like, it's it's Mamma Mia. Here's just ABBA songs that we're gonna stitch together by hook and by crook to give you a little semblance of a plot. Just don't worry about the plot. Let's just get to the songs because that's what you want. It's Rock of Ages, it's all that stuff. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It's just movie musicals can get away with this and they don't need to be under the microscope like a drama. Like if this was a drama, it would be terrible. But you put in the singing and dancing and it's great.
0: No, you're right. I mean, as a movie musical, I think Yankee Doodle Dandy has way more in common with something like Cabaret than it does with Singing in the Rain, right? Because Mm -hmm. this is another musical with all diegetic music. The songs you hear here are really not him being inspired to sing in the middle of a sing. Like, like, oh, we're making breakfast. Let's sing about it. It is him performing or composing or, you know, writing songs and showing people what they sound like. And so all of the music here takes place within the scenes. And that does make it. It's a jukebox musical. You know, it's not... It's not it, it's not all full of fresh music. I think there's only one new song written in here.
1: by the way, I'm just realizing as you're talking it's very much like the sound of music in the grand scheme of plotting. It's very basic like you know it's like it's just to get you from song to song and make you happy on the way out the door you know and I think uh, but yeah, you're right. it's just sort of like take all the hits and we've talked about this a lot like throughout the show like There's always like these kind of pulling back in hits, like oh that wasn't a hit then. We're gonna remake it now. We'll put this person in here. You know, there's always a it's just reusing what you have in the junk bin of music, and and hopefully you know it's trolls. It's trolls two world tour. I mean that's all like hit songs, like whatever. You know, it's like I don't know. It's um, okay, but
0: in trolls two world two tour, uh, which I have seen, when they sing "Who Let the Dogs Out," somebody gets thrown in prison.
1: (laughs) Huh.
0: That's fun. But okay, then here's my question then. If this type of movie is still popular, and I will say that I, as you know, I am a person who stands up um, very deeply for the Elton John biopic of last year. I thought that movie was terrific.
1: But that's you know, really I don't, great.
0: Yeah, I don't hate these movies on the whole at all. But what does a movie like this say about audience? Because this is both a jukebox musical and in a way there's bits in here that share a lot with Sullivan's travels. You know, they come out in the mm-hmm. same year. This is a movie about a guy who has a whole sequence where he wants to make a serious piece of art. He wants to make a film called Popularity or a production called Popularity. He does, it fails, and he goes back to big, fun musicals about
1: patriotism.
0: And so But not, much- only,
1: not only does it fail, but he immediately has no remorse about it failing. He's like, ah, all right, you know what? As a matter of fact, I'll write a letter saying, I know it failed. It's like, okay. Like, you know, it's like he, like, there's no learning. It's a sort of like, he just takes it with stride. I mean, there's a moment of, well, we'll prove him wrong. And they're like, don't. And he's like, OK, I won't.
0: Yeah. No, wait, I actually love that scene as a critic because, you know, there are, there's a lot in here making fun of critics. A critic who's like, I'm, I liked that play, but I'm going to say I hated it because I'm a critic. And that's what we do. And I mean, this is him yelling at critics when his play flops.
4: Listen,
6: George, you can't do this. You'll always regret it. Sit down and take this. We'll be sorry.
0: To the
3: theater going public. George. To the theater going public. I wrote a play called Popularity. Mr. Harris and I produced that play. In the opinion of people we respect, it is a bad play. In this, we heartily concur. It is a very bad play. I do humbly apologize and ask forgiveness for having presented anything of which you couldn't possibly approve. There will be five more performances. Please miss them. Sign. Happy? It's a wonderful second act. Send copies
0: of this to all the New York papers for the next edition. Extract: *Lusitania torpedoed by German sub*. All right, and then the *Lusitania* gets sunk, and they enter World War One, and then his career is kind of made because he makes big anthems about fighting in the war. But yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking when I was watching that too of the creatives who need to get off Twitter when their movie doesn't do well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I made this movie for the people. Y'all don't understand. I mean, there is so much in here of like taking it to Twitter.
1: You know, it's it's tricky because again there's there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I think is based in truth and then whitewashed a little bit. The breaking up of him and his partner. This, you know, like even that is like you thought it was bad, but it actually was the best breakup of all time. We had no issues whatsoever. It's like okay. All right. Um you know, it's, yeah, that was weird because the partner never becomes too much of a
0: character to me. I mean, he's like in nope. the background of the scenes and then it's a the plot point when they break up. I'm like, I forgot that he was here and we never know really what he was contributing except that yeah. he wrote stuff that was too long.
1: Well, that, and that so I feel like this is the problem, but we don't want to see it. And I always go back to that thought of, and um, this is an old reference, so forgive me uh, for bringing this up, but like the Joe the Plumber thing. This Joe, the plumber guy, if you don't remember it, but basically he was fighting for millionaires to get tax breaks because he was a small business owner and he wanted this tax break. And then it came out like two days later, like his company had been bankrupt twice, right? Like, like he wasn't near a millionaire status. He didn't have these issues, but yet he wanted to make sure that when he got to be a millionaire, he was going to have that tax break. Not that the actual thing that was going on would benefit him now in the position that he's in. It's like, but when I get to that point and I think we always are looking to films to be aspirational and carefree and it's the way that we want to tell our story because we don't like to tell the, the warts of it. Like, you know, you don't want to tell about the relationships that didn't work. You don't want to tell about the failures that you had. I think that the best stories that we do tell show that show us at our most vulnerable, but I think as a movie going audience, what you said before, like what does it say about us? It just says, we just want the hits. Bring us in and send us home. And that's and that's uh and that's all we I think sometimes really want. I think we're basic. I want that. It's the reason why Lifetime movies exist. There's a reason why, you know, uh so many like just simple comedies just come and go. They're like, I just wanna watch this on Netflix and I feel great and, and I don't want to think and I'm I'm happy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it is surprising that this movie is such a giant hit because it is it is that.
0: Well yeah, and it seems like it's aware of that. Cause you know what reminded me of the Joe the Plumber moment in this movie is when Cohen is explaining his career and he's like, look, I'm an ordinary guy who knows what ordinary Americans like to see. And I'm always fascinated, you know, as a person who came into film criticism through anthropology and through thinking of it as American anthropology, I'm fascinated by films that, you know, say that they know what Americans want. You know, what is the ordinary American? It's such a question that I feel like comes up in when you tear apart any film. Like, who who is this for? Who do they think of us? You know, and when are they right and when are they wrong? Like, if Yankee Doodle Dandy failed, that would say something completely different about the American populace in 1942. It would say that the American populace was like, we know that this is propaganda and we want to be sincere here. Like, we're not looking for something like this. We're looking for something about you know, how hard this war is going to be, you know, that's not what they saw. You know, they decided to buy this tickets to this. This is what the, the mood wanted. And so, it, cause I feel like a film takes the pulse of the populace in several ways, you know, in why it decides to be greenlit and then in whether or not it does well. And right. so to do that, but then to do another sort of story inside of this is also just a movie by a guy who says he knows what the populace wants. And he keeps saying that the populace wants big patriotic numbers and people try to tell him that he's wrong. And he's like, I'm right. You know, that whole scene where he try, is trying to convince Faye Templeton to do his plays. And she doesn't want to do his plays because she thinks they're too lowbrow. And she thinks they're too lowbrow because she thinks they're too populist. And this is her agent trying to convince her that she has to work with him because he knows something that we don't about what entertainment is for the ordinary American.
7: Well, uh, have you thought it all the same? I'm not interested in Mr. Cohen, or his plays. Well, now, you're making a great mistake, may eh? he's the most original thing that ever hit Broadway. Do you know why? Because he's the whole darn country squeezed into one pair of pants. His writing, his song, well, even his walk and his talk, they all touch something way down here in people. And don't ask me why it is, but it happens every time the curtain goes up. It's pure
3: magic. I'm bored by magic. I know his formula. A fresh young sprout gets rich between 8.30 and 11 p.m.
7: Yes, that's just it, Fay. George M. Cohan has invented the success story, and every American loves it because it happened to be his own private dream. He's found the mainspring in the Yankee clock. Ambition, pride, patriotism. That's why they call him the Yankee Doodle Boy. Now, if you take a tip from me, Fay, you'll do just what I'm doing. You'll hit your wagon to his star right now.
0: I've got to change for the
1: second act. And by the way, that's Jimmy Cagney's story. That could be taken right out of Jimmy Cagney and his brother talking about why he needed to do this movie. You know, it's, it's, it's hit your rag into this guy. And I, and I do think that there is an element, and Amy, I, I, I think you can maybe help me wrap my head around this, that also people like Jimmy Cagney. He's a bad guy, but he's a known bad guy. He is a popular actor. So then you put him in this movie that's light that's lovable. You know, you're also going along for the Jimmy Cagney journey. I think I'm watching this movie as much as a story about Jimmy Cagney as I am about George M. Cohen. You know, I, th- I think you're just like, oh, he's fantastic. The dancing's so good. You know, Jimmy Cagney's great. And-, and he gets recognized for an Academy Award in this movie after being ignored for playing a bad guy for so long. So I think you, all- you mix that right thing together. It's like you put that right face with the right story and you're already open to Jimmy Cagney because he's already been on our screens. And we like him. And you put him with a, a positive story. It becomes like, it's like this, this Hollywood alchemy that just explodes, it explodes something. It's like, I love Jimmy Cagney and I love this. Let's go.
0: No, I think you're exactly right. I think Jimmy Cagney makes this movie work for me today. And I will admit, you know, this is a movie that I didn't see at a time when I was happier with America. Like, I wonder if I, if I had first watched this movie in 2009, you know, Would I would my heart be soared because I was very proud of America and felt like we were on the right track? Like, would I be like, yes? You know, in watching this film in 2020 at a time where I'm, you know, looking at us being like number one in COVID deaths, like, does that really influence how I see this flag waving? And does it make me dislike it? Like it, you know, how much does the American anthropology of this moment affect how I see this movie and make me kind of uncomfortable? And it is absolutely Jimmy Cagney who carries me through the joy of what this movie wants to say, because I love him so much. And yeah, his whole biography is exactly like this. Like he grew up really poor in the Lower East Side of New York. He's an Irish immigrant. His parents were, you know, his dad, I think, was like a boxer and a bartender. He was a street brawler. And he winds up becoming this like vaudeville tap dancer just to make money. You know, he has really Mm. no prospects. He's not even a trained dancer, like was one of the things I love about him. He knew one dance step that he kind of forced himself to learn, and he used that to get into an audition. And because he did this really complicated dance step, they're like, oh, you're good. So they let him in, and then he just studied what everybody else was doing and worked his way up. I mean, he's incredible.
1: Well, by the way, I, I think some people knock this film because they go, well, he wasn't that great of a dancer. He got by by really being an actor who can dance, not a dance who can act. And, you know, Fred Astaire, they really wanted Fred Astaire for this part. He wouldn't do it because he felt that George M. Cohen's dance moves were very stiff and he was a much more fluid uh, performer. But I feel like I watched this movie after I read those, the you know, kind of quotes about him not being a great dancer. I'm like, that's crazy. He... I mean, he's performing. He's a really engaging performer, and I and you know maybe it's the uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt of it all too. I think when you have when you are a great actor and you can kind of dance, it makes the dancing even better because I think you're you're really making a full performance of of it. You're you're really crafting a performance. But I I look here and I there's nothing there that I'm like oh, I don't think he's that good of a dancer. I mean. I, did you see that? Do you feel like he's not that good of a dancer? I mean, he seems amazing.
0: I think he's pretty good. But a lot of why I think that he is such a good dancer is because I love him for this other musical. He did not do many musicals. Mm. He did one called um, Footlight Parade, which I worship. Uh, because oh, it yeah. Was, yeah. I love Footlight Parade. It's a Busby Berkeley movie. Um, I would love to have a Busby Berkeley movie on this list. But yeah. Footlight Parade is hard because, you know, I, I actually... I'm a little nervous about playing this clip. I pulled a clip from Footlight Parade um, where it's an example of Jimmy Cagney actually singing, which I think Mm -hmm. is important to hear because we're going to play some clips of him in this movie later. And he's just he's imitating Cohen in the way he sings. So you might watch this and think, oh, he can't sing that well. He could sing a little better than this. You know, he's act singing. Okay, this is Jimmy Cagney singing. He tap dances later in the scene. He's a fantastic tap dancer, I think, in Footlight Parade. I'm adding caveats because the one thing about Footlight Parade that really ruins it for 5 minutes is this incredibly racist scene. So that this is me apologizing preemptively for that. Um, it's called Shanghai Lil and in the scene uh, Jimmy Cagney is playing he's playing he's acting at a person who's acting. So he's playing an actor playing a sailor who's trying to find his favorite Asian prostitute uh who's right. played by Ruby Keeler who cannot dance.
6: I got new lover.
3: You little devil, you're just a butterfly.
0: I like you, lover.
3: You're still on the level. You can't kid this guy.
0: I pray to Buddha in the Josh house. And Buddha, he bring back my bill.
7: He's been looking high and he's been looking low. Looking for your champagne.
1: Wow. Even with that that disclaimer i was still a little shocked whoa yeah Um, so yeah i mean look we have to not that we have to spend that much time on it because i think we've addressed this in previous episodes too but yes there's blackface in this movie um in a very uh small section of it but you know there's these inescapable things that like kind of mar our history of these films because there are things oh yeah i would like to see jimmy like jimmy cagney singing in what was acceptable at a certain time you know i want to acknowledge like like we said uh, in in our previous episode when we talked about this like we have to acknowledge that this shouldn't just be like cool you know it's there it's 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 something that we have to look at and and look and go like is it uh, is it something that we want to put up on a pedestal now you know can we appreciate <laughs> parts and 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 maybe get rid of other parts you know I don't yeah
0: know. i mean like the blackface here which i was like oh god and i really wish for seven thousand reasons that i could have found a better clip of jimmy cagney singing
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but part of the reason why i couldn't is because he got typecast so early on as a gangster that they didn't let him sing i mean this is really one of the only clips of him singing at all that i think exists well, and yeah. and yeah like what you're saying about the kind of goodness that he has that he radiates i mean that's so much of his charm all the way, like he was able to play gangsters that people loved. You know, like yes. Bogart was a scary gangster. When Bogart shows up, you're like, okay, I'm keeping an eye on you. You freak me out. But there's something about Jim, Jimmy, like this electricity that he just had on, on screen, where you loved his characters even when you knew you're going to watch them die. Even when, you know, he gets famous for, of course, like shoving half a grapefruit in a girl's face and be yeah. like, whoa, but they love him anyways for that. And so he brings that ability to make people love whoever he's playing to George M. Cohen. Like he makes you love Cohen in a way because of what he adds to it. And because of, because of the very Jimmy Cagney-ness. And I think that's a lot of why he winds up winning the Oscar here. Is a, of course, like this force of goodwill and patriotism, this hit, this fact that George Cohen dies, but just Jimmy Cagney, you cannot say that he's not giving this part his all, you know, the way that he sings, the way that he dances, the way that he is just there. He is so intense. Like he is a performer.
1: And if you look at the production of this, it is an impressive production. I mean, from the local stage shows that they do as they're traveling around the vaudeville circuit to when they get to that one theater uh, where they're doing the big slapstick production to the Yankee Doodle number, the horses on stage, like the production is so impressive that at a certain point in the film, when they have made a little bit of money and they go back to this farm, they buy this farm and the family's on the farm. I'm like, is this part of a Broadway musical too? Because- you're so used to seeing like a certain level of performance uh, on a on a stage, and it, it, it's so well kind of done that it took me like a, a beat to be like, wait a second, is this is this real life or is this another show? It really it really kind of took me off guard there.
0: Yeah, I was kind of laughing in that scene too because the family is like. Now we are normal Americans, and yes. I was wondering if it was a joke that he didn't seem like he was that good at chopping kindling. I was like, "Are you a normal American? You've just given us a speech about how you're a normal American, but you're pretty bad at chopping kindling." And, and you're just, in a, and, yeah. and you're in
1: like a full suit. Like he was, a, he didn't look like he had like adapted to farm life at all.
0: No. And there was part of me that was wondering if that scene was like a criticism of people who think they are normal Americans when they're clearly a little bit off. You know, he grew up on this mm. on stage as a performer. Like, is he is he really the normal American that he think, he says he is?
1: Well, or, I think what I like about it is this idea and this going back to this idea of like where I think there's a lot of truthfulness in acting here, which is like that idea like, oh, I wish I just want to retire to a farmhouse i just want to just go on a beach somewhere and i think for most performers they don't want to do that i think they want the the idea of wanting to do that but they don't actually want to do it and i feel like that's the push pull of cohen like he's moving 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 and even at the end when he's in his hammock you know he's reading variety you know he's like he he doesn't want to be there he wants to talk to people and say he wants to be there but he doesn't want to be there
0: no, I actually love that variety scene. I mean, he is reading oh, like. I love a, that. Yeah, he's reading a real variety cover that actually did exist. Yeah, and it's got it is a famous um, headline. You know, sticks.
1: Can we can we just play the clip of it and then let's talk about it? Because oh, oh let's
0: do it. I got it right here. And I will say his context: the people that he's talking to are a bunch of young kids. This is very much the like look at this young generation. They don't have any respect for the art of the day. Sticks, nicks,
3: hicks, picks. Greek. I'll oh, bet that's Greek talk.
0: No, that ain't Greek, that's Swedish
3: or Russian. Sticks, nicks, hicks, picks. Well, that's show business talk. Here, I'll translate it for you. Sticks, small towns, nicks, refuse. Picks, rube, picks, pictures. Small towns, refuse, rube, pictures. Sticks, nicks, hicks, picks. Sticks, sticks nicks, nicks, hicks, nicks, hicks, picks. A sticks, a nicks, picks, a picks. Nicks, a sticks, a nicks, picks. You know, I thought that was new jive talk. New what talk? Jive talk. Oh. Are you an actor, sir? Used to be. What were some of your pictures? Oh, not in pictures. Uh, I was on Broadway in the legitimate theater. Oh. What's your name, sir? Cohen. Cohen? Cohen. George M. Cohen. I guess you must have been before our time. Yes, guess I was. Well, uh, were you ever in some big shows? Yeah, a few. Like what? Oh, uh, like uh, Little Nellie Kelly, uh, The Tavern, Our Wilderness. Ah. Uh-huh. Hmm. Raising a vacuum bottle. Well, I guess your parents must have seen me. Uh, fathers and mothers. Maybe they have. I never heard them talk about it. Hmm. Have you ever a song called uh, Give My Regards to Broadway? Mm, I don't think so. Who sang it? Who sang it? Oh, was it a theme song or something? Was that a follow-up to Beat Me Daddy Ate to a Bar? Yes, or Jeepers Creepers.
0: Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those Jeepers? (laughs) I mean, that scene, it, it made me think of what I was trying to stay aware of this whole time, which is and I I hate to say this out loud because I feel like it makes me sound like a little, like a bit of a ninny, but it's very hard for my ears to tell the difference between like a George M. Cohen song and the songs that like were 10 years before that he seems to have revolutionized. They kind of all sound like one music to me. Like I can't really Mm. tell how how his songs were different than everything. You know, there's a moment like, I've never heard anything like that before. And I'm like, really? And my ears don't catch it. And then to have this scene here where he's hearing people sing Jeepers Creepers and he's squinting, like it's like, mega death or something. And he's so changed by, by Jeepers creepers. And I'm like, I can't tell much of the difference between Jeepers creepers and what you do, but these kids show up and he's like, he's basically like these millennials, what is their problem? And these kids are actually going to grow up to be the greatest generation. You know, we're like, Oh, we're the greatest generation. But he's like these hooligans.
1: But you know, it, yeah, I I totally agree. I love that. Again, I love the scene. I think it speaks to the idea too of, you know, we talk about now like actors, like they go by so quickly, you know, cause what's next, who's next, who can stay on top? How do you stay in the mix? And, you know, here's a guy who basically they, he, you know, they position him as this force, this, you know, this uniting force of America, like these huge hits and they don't even recognize the song. It's like these kids ran into like Michael Jackson. And he's like, I wrote beat it. And they're like, what, what's that? Do you know the thong song?
4: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
1: With all that being said, and all these like little details, it is fun to watch because I think production value, uh, Jimmy Cagney, there's likability here. And I think likability gets you a long way. I've always said that I will see anything that Denzel Washington is in because regardless, it will always be a Denzel Washington movie, and those are pretty good. You know, uh it's like, yeah. and that's why I think when he did those like Tony Scott movies, which I did love those Tony Scott movies. Mm-hmm. But it's like like he elevates everything. You know, Denzel elevates all the time. Um and uh, you know, in this, in this, you know, I think that he's elevating this and making you yeah, you That's enjoy true. the whole ride.
0: And what well what I think is interesting too is, you know, speaking of like his songs and and how they get kind of remembered and re-remembered, you know, when this film comes out in like 1942, his legacy I think was already being pulled apart a little bit in the media, just a little bit, you know, before the war started. Because in 1938, you have this book by Dalton Trumbo, a guy who did get in trouble with UAC, as we know. He wrote a book called Johnny Got His Gun, which is a reference to, you know, the George M. Cohen song, like, Johnny Got your gun, you know, about like, go to war. And so Dalton Trumbo writes this anti-war book about, of course, like the soldier who loses his arms, his legs, his eyes, and he becomes just a torso in, in a bed. He writes this book and he chooses to use like a Cohen lyric as a way of making a point about like kind of empty patriotism. And so it's, he's already getting tussled over. I mean, you see this happen to all of his songs, like born on the 4th of July, you know how they take his lyric, Yankee doodle dandy born on the 4th of July and use it then later to make another anti-war film. And the idea of people struggling over his legacy. I mean, I was trying to think of any sort of a parallel and the dumbest parallel I came up with is so dumb and I feel bad. I'm even going to say it out loud, but it's like, if now that, you know, a decade has gone by since the black eyed peas did my humps, it's like mm-hmm. if now that song was being used as like a way to raise money for like fighting leprosy or something, uh, I don't know, but you it know, to, to take like, right. to take a, a no, song yes. and then rework it and reclaim it and make it, you know, dark, like a darker version of what it was intending to be.
1: Well, I mean, but aren't you seeing that all the time when you see like, um, like political candidates use like a Bruce Springsteen song and then they, and then the artists like don't use that song because they know that you're associating a goodwill with, that song, and they're trying to capitalize on it. I think you see that a lot in politics. Like, you know, who's performing for, you know, at these uh, inaugural events? like they're they're trying to say, we are one. You like this? Like I think that like Fleetwood Mac and Bill Clinton had like a very interesting connection. It was like, you are a generation of this. We remember we all like Fleetwood Mac. we were this is it. people like we're r- rumors. Uh, you know, well,
0: um, yeah, I mean that is interesting because, because because you know, a song like Over There, which I think was such a huge hit at this time again. And to me, I've for- I did not know that song. Over there mm-hmm. is a new song to me. Um yeah. that melody oh, was that. actually repurposed. The Over There melody was purposed for a specific crowd by a specific candidate in 2016. Do you remember um the USA Freedom Kids who would perform at Trump rallies?
1: No. Here oh, they wow. are.
0: Listen, I thought you might need some palate cleansing after that, Um, so I picked another beloved American group uh, singing another beloved George M. Cohen song. You might recognize this voice. He's a big purple dinosaur.
1: Enough, enough. Oh, my okay, gosh.
0: Okay, 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 okay. But, you know, I want to say one interesting thing. While we're talking about songs getting reworked and reworked and fought over as a, as a symbol of, like, legacy and and who we are as a country, I mean, Yankee Doodle itself is such an interesting song to pick about this. Do you know the history of the original Yankee Doodle song?
1: He put a feather in his cap and made it macaroni. I know that, that he yeah. just sort of did, like, some sort of a, a Jesus Christ kind of a moment there. That's true, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Here's what that meant, actually. Okay, so let me jump you all the way back to the Revolutionary War. What was happening is that the British um, were making fun of these people that they called macaronis. And basically what a macaroni was to the British people was it was like a British person who went abroad to Italy And thought he was now all sophisticated and European and continental. And he liked fancy food like macaroni, which I will say, again, I appreciate that they're anti-macaroni. Thank you for Mm -hmm. this. But so they started calling these people, these like young British dudes who went to Italy and then came back and thought they were all like hipster. They started calling them macaronis because they dressed all funny and they dressed all fancy. So then they started making fun of Americans by saying they wished they could be macaronis, but they're not even cool enough to be macaronis. They can't even do it right. They screw up being a macaroni. And that's why like they ride and even on a pony, like they can't even Americans are so lame. We don't even have horses. We ride ponies. That's and so they hilarious. write this Yankee Doodle song as a way of making fun of us. You know, it's supposed to be like Yankee Doodles are idiots. And then what happens is America's like, you know what? Yeah, we are like that. We don't care about being cool. We're lame. And they start singing Yankee Doodle back. So like there's battles when we're fighting the Revolutionary War in like 1777, where British people are watching it. And like one of the British reporters is like, they started singing Yankee Doodle at us. And it really sucked, essentially. Like it was so embarrassing that now like this is their song. So Yankee Doodle itself has always been fought over back and forth. I,
1: wow, I love that, Amy. That's really fascinating. And I, I think it's a fitting tribute. Like, you know, you you create something, you take it, you manipulate it. Then someone manipulates that. And then we manipulate the next thing. It's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And then sometimes that photocopy turns out to be something Better than the original or different than the original? It's it's not even it's not even a photocopy anymore. It's its own thing. It's that's uh that's really interesting. I didn't know that at all.
0: But anyways, I want to talk a little bit more about Cagney and why he's so great. And I have I pulled a couple clips about it. But I feel like before I do, we should at least hear him sing. I feel like we've been talking about the buildup of like hearing him sing in this movie for for oh, yeah. the entire episode. So let's just hear his delivery of Yankee Doodle, Doodle Dandy.
3: I'm gonna give America the English Dabby Cup. He's going to give America the English garlic cup. I'm a Yankee Doodle dandy, Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart, she's my Yankee Doodle joy. Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am that Yankee Doodle boy. He's a Yankee Doodle
1: man. Yeah, I mean, he kind of has that interesting delivery. I mean, it, it is—it's like a talk sing. I mean, that's why I kind of really like that song at the end, the off the record. But that's just talking, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that's
0: that's more Cohen. That's more Cohen it has, uh, than than Cagney, I think. Although right. it's true, I don't have enough of Cagney singing to know for sure. But this is definitely how Cohan sang. I mean, like Jimmy Cagney even hired one of Cohan's choreographers to make sure he got that strange little stiff, weird, like jerky, cocky, strange dance number, right? (laughs) I mean, I love all of that. But here, I want to play you a clip of somebody saying that Jimmy Cagney is his favorite actor and really explaining why and why he works so well in this role. And that is none other than the great Orson Welles.
6: But Cagney, in my view, was maybe the greatest actor who ever... Appeared in front of the camera, really? Yes. James Cagney. Yes. Why? why was that? What was this? What makes? You so first angry? of all, he broke every rule about movie acting. He came. You see, the first thing that every stage actor says is, "I learned to act for the camera because you have to do less. You can't, you, know, you can't do laddie. What you do at the National Theatre, you have to act for the camera." So, Cagney came on as though we were playing to an audience of forty-five hundred people. He acted at the top of his bent, and he never hammed for one moment. Thus proving my point that Hamming is not overacting. It is false acting. It's fakery. Yeah. And there's not a fake minute in a Cagney movie. Please have a season of him yeah. and study what, yes. what he was. In fact, I was thinking the other day about the people I haven't interviewed who I'd love to. And I think he comes somewhere. He won't come. I know. Uh, he's he a com- won't come. He won't. Complete uh, recluse now, isn't yes. he? Uh, well, no, but he won't come in front of a camera. No. He, he goes out and does his uh, his uh, thing, and he goes to Hollywood for six months every year. And sees his old cronies and so on. But in all his life, like, you know, he was like Tracy and a lot of people. He never went to a nightclub once, never went out. You know, he was a totally uh, invisible. You know, Garbo wasn't the only one. No. There was just a small group who went to Macambo and. Uh, and slugged the the photographers and did all that
1: scene, you know. You know, Orson Welles put it so well. That's, I think, the thing that really pulls me in about this movie that I haven't been able to put my finger on. The majority of the film, or a lot of the pieces, are on stage, and it never feels performative. And I think that's why I had that trouble with the blurred lines between the farm scene and the stage scenes, because they have a naturalistic quality to them. They're not overtly like, I'm an actor trying to show you what acting is like you never even see that. Even when you're watching a bad actor, you don't see that, you know, you're just watching them perform.
0: No, I think you're exactly right. And I have to admit, I think I finally now get a joke in this movie that I did not get before, which is when he comes home to his girlfriend to be, and she's making food and she's like ham or bacon. And he says, ham makes me self-conscious. Maybe that's That's a joke about being hammy. I just thought that was a throwaway line. I was very again
1: Actors being actors. Now, Amy, I will say one thing, and I feel like this is just worthy of mentioning as a side note, you know, Yes, he copied George M. Cohen's moves, but he also, uh, and you know, this is maybe lore, I don't know if it's true, but he improvised that final dance coming down the stairwell in the FDR musical. Like he just came up with that five minutes before and just kind of put it on the spot. So even though he was embodying Cohen, he's also doing some Cagney here too, you know, and he was a trooper throughout the whole process. He broke a rib, he kept on dancing. This guy is is adding a lot of himself into this performance.
0: He is, he is. And you know, I just want to play this tiny clip because I adore him so much. He does seem like one of the rare actors who was beloved by Hollywood, just across the board. Even though he did get more conservative when he was older, he he really hated hippies. And so he hated hippies so much, kind of like Cohen in his hammock here, getting mad at like the jazz speaking kids that Mm -hmm. he wound up becoming kind of conservative. But he had this way of really pulling together so many different sides of Hollywood and, you know, in 1974, which is around the same time that I think Orson Welles was saying that he worshipped him, he gets this Lifetime Achievement Award from AFI. It's an awesome speech. It's really funny. I just want to play this tiny clip of it towards the end where you hear him go from choking up about his family to making a joke at his own expense, you know, about, about the kind of character that he knows he brought to the, straight, to the screen.
8: My brother Bill, my sister Jane, <sighs> gotta hang on, boy. And all the Cagneys who, over the years, all pulled their share of the burden through those long and troubled years. They were many. And the names, the names, the names of my youth. Loggerhead Quinlevan, Artie Klein, Pete Leiden, Jake Brodkin, Spexta Porsa, Brother O'Mara, Picky Houlihan, who were all part of a very stimulating early environment, which produced that unmistakable touch of the gutter without which this evening might never have happened at all.
0: But wait, did you know this, Paul? Did you know that he is not um, the last person to play George M. Cohan?
1: Wait a second. No, I did not.
0: That, in fact, a person very near and dear to our heart also played George M. Cohen. Who's that? A person who might be named Joel Gray. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So remember how we were talking about last episode that there was the Cabaret Broadway production and then there was Cabaret the movie and years went by in between them? Yes. In those years, Joel Gray played, he actually played George M. Cohen in a play called George M., which did not really quite go as well as uh, as Yankee Doodle did because it was 1968 and the country was in a different mood. But okay. this is a little bit of, George, of Joel just talking about it.
8: There was a, a misconception that it was about patriotism. When it wasn't, it was about a very complex, important character and uh, force in the New York theater. There was a lot of a lot of um, sugar coating of his life in Yankee Doodle Dandy. And uh, we were about to uncover the complex guy that he was, which was uh, in many ways controversial and
1: not such a nice guy. Interesting. I mean, you know, I think it's all about the mindset you're in. Like I can watch a movie like this. that takes place in 1942 and feel very patriotic and sing all the stars and stripes. But then when I see that clip that you showed of people at a, a, a political rally of, of now it, stars and stripes make me feel a little bit like cloying. Like it just feels like, Oh, too much. Like you, why are you bending over backwards? I'm, I'm somebody who I love my country and I vote and I'm active and I, you know, I feel very much a kinship here, but I would never wear an American flag. I that's not it just, it kind of puts me off but oddly back then i kind of have a different mo i have a different feeling about it i don't know what that is either
0: yeah i mean it's it makes this film to me so valuable as a litmus test i guess like how do we yeah. feel about it when we watch it you know you're right because now i think i have seen so many rallies that i see rallies that make me really uncomfortable that when yeah. i see a whole room full of flags i think my immediate reaction is to jump back a bit which isn't fair to the film
1: no yeah uh,
0: So I'm trying to call myself out on it. And I I want to be able to love this film more than I can in the year 2020.
1: Well, I think this movie is great for sequences, right? Great set pieces, without a doubt. I think the plot is you don't need it. I think you you could pop around on YouTube and enjoy everything that this movie has to offer, which is Jimmy Cagney just putting on a full show. But that's just my opinion. I mean, there's one opinion out there that means more than any opinion, and that is the opinion of The Simpsons. Is there a Simpsons clip?
0: Yes, there is. There is. And in fact, if I was paying attention as a child, I would have heard over there at least one more time in my life because there's an episode called War of the Simpsons where uh, Grandpa Simpson is left watching Bart and Lisa and Maggie while um, Homer and Marge go away and take a couples therapy.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: poor, poor Grandpa Simpson in this clip is singing to himself in the shower, having no idea that Bart has turned his house into a living hellhole. Over there, turn the word, turn the word over
1: there.
2: And he ain't to
1: okay, so it passes the Simpsons test. Amy, uh, what do people think when this comes out? I think we we know it's a hit, but did everyone just love it?
0: Uh, yeah. Everybody loved it. Yeah. I don't know if that was a thousand percent the film or if it was a thousand percent, nobody was going to criticize anything that American in 1942. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The New York Times, the very last word of the New York Times review is take our word, it's dandy. Um, the New Yorker, who is a very difficult critic at the time, um, John Mosher, the most he would say is that as a portrait of the actor, it was dubious. But other than okay. that, he's like, it's great, it's so great, it's so great. Uh, So in lieu of failing to find anything negative about this, I thought I'd pull kind of two contrasting clips that kind of make the point that we're talking about here about how these films are reflected in the era they come out. One of them is from 1982. And this is when, um, in 1982, they resurrect a play that he performs here, Little Johnny Jones, the one where you sing Yankee Doodle the Dandy, the one about the jockey. So they bring back Little Johnny Jones in 1982, this George M. Coe musical, and they cast David Cassidy in the lead. And it absolutely dies. It plays one night and then closes. Like, nobody wants to see this play in 1982. And here's what the New York Times wrote about it then. They said, As little Johnny Jones begins, the audience is invited to rise and sing the Star Spangled Banner to a flag that's been set up in the stage right box. And so the flags keep unfurling right through the curtain call, at which point a gargantuan old glory drops from the heavens to fill the entire proscenium. Along the way, a delicate question is raised. With so many stars and stripes on view, is it treason to be bored stiff from beginning to end of Little Johnny Jones? If so, more than a few theatergoers may soon find themselves under house arrest. And so, that oh, wow. definitely is coming from a time where maybe kind of like today, people see something that seems that nationalistic and they're uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then
0: this one I pulled because it was, I think, the loveliest defense I've read in a modern day era of Yankee Doodle. And this comes from November 2001. Um, which is, of course, a couple, like, two months after the September 11th attacks. And what's happening in this piece, and I very strongly urge you to find the whole thing, it's a New York Times interview with John Travolta. And what is happening is that a New York Times writer goes to John Travolta's house, John Travolta picks out a movie for them to watch together, and he picks out Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, Hmm. It's a big piece. I can't read that much of it, but I'll give you kind of the highlights. It's just beautiful. Basically, what happens is... John Travol took cries several times watching Yankee Doodle Dandy in front of this New York times reporter. He says that he's loved this movie since he was five. He's seen it at least 30 times. And that Jimmy Cagney is part of who inspired him to become a performer. That when he was little, his mom would, um, if he wanted, if his mom wanted to do something like go clean his room or brush his teeth, his mom would pretend that Jimmy Cagney was on the phone and that Jimmy Cagney was telling him he had to go clean his room. And because he worshiped Jimmy Cagney so much, he did it. And so Yankee Doodle Dandy, he's watching this right after September 11th happens. And when Jimmy Cagney starts to sing Yankee Doodle Dandy, he starts to cry. And then when Jimmy Cagney does his um, scene against his father, you know, when his father dies with Walter Houston, he starts to cry again because it reminds him of how he then became friends with Jimmy Cagney when he was older. And that when John Travolta was famous, um, he used part of his star clout to become friends with Jimmy Cagney when Jimmy Cagney was 81 years old. And that when he went to his house he started to tell him like how much he meant to him as a child. And he started to cry. And that when he started to cry, uh, Jimmy Cagney started to cry and that they had this really good friendship and that he was one of the last people to see Jimmy Cagney before he died. And that their deathbed scene reminds him of this deathbed scene with Jimmy Cagney being like, I'm going to be okay. And him being like, yes, you are. And just talking theater to each other. So it's this absolute it. beautiful piece. And there is a line in here that touches on something you said earlier, where, John Travolta says, you know, he sticks up for Jimmy Cagney's dancing almost as though it's better or more important than Fred Astaire. He says that Fred Astaire would come out and he just entertained you. But Cagney inspired you to want to dance, to want to do it yourself. And that he said him, he feels like that was his own success. At the key to his, his, his success in Saturday Night Fever is because everybody who came to see Travolta dance in Saturday Night Fever said, I can kind of do that type of dancing. And so for an actor to give that to an audience, it's a gift is to inspire people to dance.
1: I love that. I love that idea. And I also love that idea that the best people make you feel like it is actually doable and not that it's unattainable. And that's something that I feel all the time, whether it's as simple as doing improv. And when people go, that's can't be improvised. Or if it's some thing, that is the trick of being an amazing actor. And maybe that's the trick of this movie is that it it shows you how easy something is that actually was very hard. And maybe that's what we want to see. And that kind of round Robins, everything. Mm Amy, it all works out. Um, I love that story. And I love how this movie can affect people. I definitely felt affected by it. I felt connected to it, but I guess the question is, does it belong on the list? Uh, You know, we've definitely been going back and forth on it. I mean, Amy, what do you think?
0: Well, gosh, I mean, I have to admit, regardless of whatever we think, I don't think it's long for the list if they ever redo Mm -hmm. it again. I mean, it was 100. It moved up to 98. I feel like it's clinging on. I I find it such an interesting film to talk about because I think we're talking as much about ourselves in a lot of ways when you talk about Yankee Doodle Dandy, like how we react to it. I mean, hearing how Travolta reacted to it post 9-11 feels very different from how I react to it today. I feel like we're in a mood as a culture where we want to hear America talk about how it fucks up and what we're going to do better. And this is not a movie that does that, you know? So with yeah. that in, in, in mind and with the fact that my favorite musical director is not on this list who did work with Cagney, you know, Busby Berkeley, I want to put not footlight parade because, you know, like that clip we played earlier, it, it doesn't age. Well, I can't say it should go in at all with like a clear heart at all. Not at all. But there is a Busby Berkeley film that I feel like should be on here instead And we actually played a clip from it really early on when we talked about uh, Swing Time, which is Gold Diggers of 1933.
1: Oh, right. Yeah.
0: I love that film. And I feel like that film touches on so many things. I mean, you could say Yankee Doodle, like it ignores the depression, you know? Like, oh, I don't know if the depression even happens in this film. It just kind of goes on. He's on a farm. It ignores it. But Gold Diggers of 1933 is a film that's very much a beautiful musical, amazing numbers, like, oh, choreography that makes me want to die, and a number like the Forgotten Man number, which I think is 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 a number as beautiful as anything George Cohen wrote. You know, I think it equals it at least. And then it also has that pig Latin number by Ginger Rogers. So we'd get our Ginger Rogers in, even if swing time is gone. You know, we got, we got options here if we put in something like Gold Diggers of 33.
1: I'm going to say something about this movie. And I don't like to be like this person all the time. But I think it is important that we're living in a culture that at least acknowledges this. If you're making a movie about America, we should showcase more than a white man making it all okay, right? America is this diverse tapestry. Not to say that everything has to be diverse. We can tell different stories. And this is a biopic of this person, but it's so closely associated with like what it is to be a patriot, what it is to be an American. And Yes, he's an immigrant. He's an Irish-American, but I feel like you know, if you put like this and Hamilton next to each other, and the way that Hamilton—I and I know that that's not a movie—but you know, what's a more compelling story about where America is and 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 who built America and and just different faces? So there's a part of me that like what it represents. I would love to see represented in a in a more diverse way with women and people of color. Obviously, it's a biopic, so I can't change that. I can't say I wish, and you know, I wish uh, straight out of Compton, you know, had a little bit more Michael Bolton in it. Um, But I do feel like when we're talking about these things that encapsulate it, I I think I would be looking for something like that. I don't know what I would replace it with uh, right away. um, But I was just thinking about that a lot. Like you know, I think in many respects, uh, you know, musicals are hard to to put on this list because I think so few really really work they're known for these little moments so in the sense of this is a moment in american culture a great memeable jimmy cagney dancing a great uh you know reward of jimmy cagney it definitely belongs on the list as far as like a movie i I think it kind of falls off the list not 100 you know far off it's way better than ben hur to me it's it's just uh i just think that we could do i think there's better movies i think this is a great performance and I don't know if a performance elevates a movie to be on this list. I think you need to have both things at play: an amazing script, uh, amazing direction, and amazing performance. And I think this movie has like one of one of three, but a really great one. Very I long-winded think that's answer. That's
0: fair. No, I mean I think that's totally fair because yeah, like Yankee Doodle Dandy is on this list. I think for a different reason than Singing in the Rain. You know, Singing in the Rain mm-hmm. is on the list a because of course it tells the story of Hollywood and movie making. But be because it's just a great musical. Like people love that musical. they love the songs, they love the entertainment of it. But Yankee Doodle feels like it's on the list because this is in part the American Film Institute, and it's like as American of a film as I, I think
1: exists. absolutely. you know,
0: and so I think it's on there to represent America. And if it's representing America, then you're right. We there are other ways to do that to fill that slot. You know, if that's the slot it's carved out, I think there are other slots, yeah, all right. There are other things that could fill it.
1: Well, I feel like uh, AFI probably right now is regretting their decision to entrust us with introducing this movie as we've kicked it off the list. But, you know, that's the benefit of the AFI Film Club. It's not the best films of all time. It is great movies to watch. And I think they've done an amazing job programming everything from this film to Beauty and the Beast to uh, to Spinal Tap. So I, I definitely be- believe it belongs in the pantheon of fun movies to watch. And it were- really is a quick moving film and uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it. I just don't know if it's one of the best, Uh, but let's talk about next week's film.
0: Okay. So Paul, you know what we are doing on next week's episode. I mean, this is, this is, this is at least a landmark in one major area. We are doing our oldest film on the list. The absolute oldest film on the AFI list dates all the way back to 1916. It is a film called intolerance by the landmark director, DW Griffith. And If you haven't seen Intolerance yet, well, you're in for it. Here we go. But one weird fun fact about Intolerance that I particularly love living here in L.A. is that if you go to um, Grauman's Chinese Theater, Hollywood and Highland, the Dolby Theater where the Oscars are, it's all part of a mall, which tends to surprise people that the Oscars are held in a mall. But my favorite fun fact about that mall is they resurrected part of the Intolerance set. And you are shopping at a Sephora that's right across from a giant mock-up of the set of Intolerance. Giant elephants. It's very insane looking. It cracks me up every time I'm there. So our question and call-in for next week's episode is, pick your dream movie set that you think needs to be turned into a mall. What do you want to (laughs) see when you go shopping? What movie set? Let us know. It's probably not these giant Babylonian elephants, but maybe it is. It's kind of fantastic. So feel free to think outside of the box on this one. And let us know your dream movie set turned into a mall. The phone number is, as always, 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824.
1: Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, that will be interesting. All right, so uh, we will see you next (laughs) week for uh, Unspooled Intolerance. Think about your mall movie location. And thanks for listening to today's show, which was all about our good friend, George M. Cohen, a real great Irishman.